The information in this podcast is educational in general nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of In the Market Trenches. Uh, You'll notice that this is the first episode that Gary and I are actually recording together. We're, uh, we're at the beach house and Gary, uh, he was even trying to social distance here He's over at the couch and uh, we're going to do this on two screens. I invited him over. So Eric said, hey, dummy, come over here. Uh, we're, we're, doing, uh, we're doing the real world uh, of investments here. And uh, I'm happy to have you here. We're happy to have our guest here with us today. And uh, it's the first time a non-family member has touched me in about six months. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how I feel about that. All right. Uh, so. Thank you, thank you for joining us today. Um, if you're new, remember you can check us out on our blog, www.accretivewealthpartners.com. You could subscribe to us, download the podcast, wherever podcasts are available. You could also find us at inthemarkettrenches.podbean.com. Um, you could find us at snn.network or on the SNN YouTube channel, it's youtube.com slash snnwire. Today, we have a special guest for you. Really excited to have him here, Stephen Keel of Arquitos. Uh, he's the portfolio manager, the founder. He has a lot of great stories. I've talked to him offline multiple times about, uh, about his investing. Um, Steve, welcome. Happy to have you here. Hey, thanks. Thanks guys. I wish I was at the beach house as well. I don't know that we could fit the three of us on one screen though. So I, I might have to go out on the deck. Uh, yeah. You guys can sit there close together and I'll, I'll stay over here. Yeah. You're in, uh, you're in New York city, right? Today? New York city. Oh my. All right. Oh, so, right. <laughs> before we get too far into it, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Tell us about Arquitos. Tell us about uh, your initiative with, I think you've got a fund of funds thing going and anything else we should know about you before we dive into the, the, uh, the trenches. Yeah, I started Arquitos in 2012. Uh, I was a recovering lawyer and uh, still am in, in the uh, Army Reserves, uh, almost finishing up 20 years there. So still had to practice law in the Army, but uh, thankfully, was able to transition out of that career and start the fun, get into investing. The uh, day-to-day life is much more fun and exciting as a portfolio manager and an investor than it was as a lawyer. Uh, if anyone listening is contemplating going to law school, <laughs> and yeah, you know, we took over a small public company in 2015, started a asset management subsidiary from that. We seeded a fund, uh, Alluvial Capital, Dave Waters, uh, a few years ago, back in 2017. Then we launched a couple of funds as well. So Willow Oak Asset Management now is uh, has a seed investment and also handles operations for several funds, including my own. And we're looking to expand that actually over time here to bring on additional funds to that platform. Uh, and I think there's a great opportunity, especially for sub $100 million funds that need additional infrastructure. Willow Oak can provide that in a way that allows the portfolio manager to focus on investing and not get hung up on all the logistical operational distractions, investor relations, things like that, which are very important, but it's difficult to do when you're also spending the entire day doing research and managing the portfolio, which is what you should be doing. Uh, so yeah, yeah excited to be here. Happy to talk about some of the stories through the years. Yeah, you guys are bearing the sort of the back office and marketing sort of uh, brunt with that, right? Dave Waters is funny. Uh, he's a fellow Grove City College alum. He, me and him are the only yeah. two, I think, of, of us that are in the world of investing. So we went to the same undergrad, believe it or not. Small it's, world. 
It's a good, uh, apparently, uh, I, I think Dave actually, I think he was more like social sciences and things like that. So, you know, it's, it's nice to not get, uh, you have an MBA, right, Gary? Yeah, I went to uh, UVA uh, for, for an MBA after. Uh, oh. Any confusion, Darden? Yeah, if there's any confusion, <laughs> uh, I've got the swag. Well, at least you didn't have to unlearn anything from undergrad. I'll say that. I think that was the situation with David as well. Uh, some, sometimes you have to <laughs> real. And, I, you know, it's kind of like that with law school, too, that you, you learn all this theory and then you get out there and practice law and it turns out none of that is actually how things are done. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> no comment on that. We, we've had a fair amount of experience with lawyers the last couple of years, and uh, we, we have no comment. Uh, so, um, okay, so let's see. Um, so, Arquitos, if I remember correctly, I know you said 2012. I remember reading some of your letters. You did deep dives on a number of different sort of uh, NOL shells, not, op not operating loss vehicles. You were very, very, as I recall, very big into that, at least in the beginning. I don't know if that's still the case today. Yeah, yeah, definitely in the beginning, it's a little bit different now since the tax law changed, the opportunity kind of went away or potentially reversed. Uh, once you had the corporate tax law reduction, some of those smaller NOL companies, that value of that wasn't as uh, important, first of all. And then second of all, you know, the opportunities came about in the last couple of years for some of the conversions. So limited partnership conversions to corporations. And we saw tremendous stock market returns from that when you think about a the larger companies, whether it's a Blackstone or uh, something like that, that then, you know, there's index inclusion opportunities as well. But uh, the promise of the NOLs, I think in the early day was exciting. The realization of them, there were some stock price increases for sure on the potential from some of those companies, but the realization of those many years later has been, uh, I don't know, can we curse on this? I mean, shit. You know, they've, they've not been good. Nope. <laughs> they, there was a lot of potential and opportunity and activist investors got involved. There was special situation, uh, things that happened that were exciting, that it seemed to have a lot of promise. And then when these companies made acquisitions, the acquisitions that they made just were, were not a right fit for yeah. that style and for that, that uh, to, to utilize uh, those, those NOLs. And, I think I can't think of maybe there's one or two companies that have worked out really well from those NOL shells, but uh, I mean, for the vast majority of them, they've not it's been not good. Well, it's not, it's not, it's in my experience, it's not usually been the NOL. If it's worked out, the NOL has not been the key driver of the success. You know, Eric and I are, are recovering NOL addicts ourselves and yeah. uh, we've, we've been lured into an NOL shell or two over time. And uh, we, we have, uh, we have the scars to prove it. And what's funny about these things. And I've, and I've noticed that like, you know, I've seen some with a pile of cash in an NOL and then they go out and do a deal. And I'm like, why would you do that kind of deal? Like, like think about like, and from my perspective, if like, if Buffett had an NOL show with a wad of cash, what would he do? And I don't, I, I don't think he'd go out and just buy a crappy business with a lot of leverage. I think he might, <laughs> I think he might just go try to find C's candy and stick it in there or whatever version of that he could afford with the money he had and just let yeah. that work itself out over time. Like, a lot, like, a lot of these, a lot of these wind up being kind of like too cute by half. And, and, and now our estimation on it has been that the NOL shell is only as good as the plan to use it. And totally. that's, that's where we've come, come down on this over time. Totally. I, I, I completely agree. And some of these really did run up in prices though. So depending on what your entry point and exit point was, you could have made a tremendous return, but it's very difficult to time things. Obviously just, 
overall, but especially in those types of situations, because even when the stock prices had run up, there was additional kind of promise associated with it, so to speak. I think the best NOL shells are what are kind of post NOL shells at this point. I mean, there's a very under the radar company called Pendrel. I mean, we'll talk about a different company, of course, but, but Pendrel is an interesting one because they delisted, they did a reverse stock split. The stock ask right now, I think is $150,000 a share. So they, they just tried to go under the radar and they're playing a long game with it. They just uh, sponsored a SPAC and they're basically attempting to do different investment opportunities through that without levering themselves up. And I think that's the way you do it. Uh, I mean, that's a financial engineering type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's one way to do it that is probably probably better than what most of these small cap uh, NOL shells did over the last. Yeah. I mean, this was like from 2010 to maybe 2017. I don't know that there's a whole lot of things going on right now with some of them. Though. No, I mean, the thing that we've looked at with NOLs recently has been uh, with the CARES Act, there's some carryback provision that, can, that you can take losses back to 2013. And, you know, there's some interesting stuff on that. Uh, yeah. You know, it's sort of... Uh, you know, but you're looking for a very, very specific type of uh, business pattern. And it's, it's sort of a bit rarer than you'd like to see. But why don't we go into like us, like this, this specific one that uh, you've got some battle scars to discuss here. So which, which NOL shell are we talking about? And uh, why don't you take me through how you found it and uh, sort of the sort of the journey it went through? Yeah, so the first NOL shell that I found when I started the fund back in 2012 with this company called ALJ Regional Holdings. I actually discovered it through Dave Waters at Alluvial. He had written it up on his blog, otcadventures.com. And I got into it. The interesting thing for me is at the time, I was not really into these NOL shells. I was more interested in these large tender offers. So, you know, I set up these different SEC filing alerts and you see a tender offer filed. I'm looking for, look, just like you guys, I love these special situations. I, I love things that, I mean, things can become unnaturally cheap because of misunderstandings generally through company specific special situation things. And that was the case with this company, ALJ Regional Holdings. There were a number of special situation items to it, which I I think would be interesting for us to talk through several of them, not just for the company themselves, but as a kind of microcosm or as 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 an example that we can use to maybe find other companies in the future. But I initially discovered it because of this large tender offer. And they did the tender offer because they had divested one of their, their only holding, their, their operational holding, which was a steel company in Kentucky. So they sold it. They paid off all the debt they had from it. And then they did a tender offer and bought back 50% of the shares. And they, I think it was a $50 million company at the time. So they bought back market cap. So they bought back you know, $25 million worth in this tender offer. And what was amazing about it was that they had, they kind of projected over the next year, no cash burn, uh, very limited overhead. And the executive chairman owned after the tender, he ended up owning 50% of the company roughly. Got it. It was fascinating though, because they did this tender offer and it was below the net cash value. It was 20% below the net cash value at that particular time of the company with really no cash burn or very limited cash burn. They were just running it for what public company costs or something like that. Yeah, just public company costs, but they were not listed at the time. So, you know, it was, it was pretty low and the, you know, even the audit was very simple because at that point they had already made the divestiture, the audit going forward was just a shell. 
And it was amazing then to see $25 million worth of people, shareholders, uh, tender their shares below its liquidation value. And that's when I got interested in it. Okay. Um, at that point in time, you, did you know that it had tax attributes or was that just something that was? Yeah, it was already known because they, they applied, uh, I think they applied some of them to the sale. They made money on the divestiture of the steel company. And so they applied, I think, some of it to the profits made from that and they had leftover. And then the tax assets had gone, they were going back like many years. You know, we're talking about, I mean, this was 2012. I think the tax assets were generated in 2005 or six that time period. Uh, and so, you know, it was kind of interesting in that way because they then had these tax assets, right? You had no cash burn really, very, very limited. Uh, the executive chairman was not taking a salary or anything like that. So you had high, in, high insider ownership. So you had that alignment. And then, you know, again, it traded at less than liquidation value and had the tender offer. And so, you know, have you ever seen a tender that was accretive to liquidation value by 15 cents a share or something like that when it was trading at 70 cents a share. Yeah, I, I've, I've seen a lot of, you know, serial buybacks in the market that had that kind of characteristic to it, yeah. but not a full on tender. No, not 50% of it. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, I mean, there's some right now, actually some significant buybacks for some of these smaller companies, because as the market has gone back up, it's primarily been, you know, the index related companies, the larger companies, and a lot of those small cap, more balance sheet strength, types of companies, small cap value, whatever you want to call it right now, they went down, but they haven't come back up really yet. And the smart ones, that's how you determine whether there's good capital allocators at the helm or not. Right. Smart right. ones are doing buybacks. And uh, those and are- so those At this are point, ones. after they did the divestiture, did they reveal what the go forward plan was? They said that they were, there were plans to make acquisitions to utilize the NOLs. The executive chairman was an experienced investment banker yeah, he was involved, you know, he, he ran a bond fund at TCW. He was, right. uh, he worked with Michael Milken in the eighties. So he was an experienced uh, investment banker. He knew what he was doing. And it, it was obvious that he knew the value of the NOLs because he didn't tender any of his shares. Of course, he used it as an opportunity to increase his percentage of ownership. Uh, so there, there was not specific, there's not a specific plan that an acquisition would be made, but it was obvious from, kind of some of the comments, the language in the filings. And uh, if, you know, if you had any conversations with them, it was obvious they were looking for an acquisition to utilize that asset. And he understood the value of that tax asset very well. Got it. Got it. So from that point, what, how did it unfold? Like, what did they do? What did they do next? I seem, I, I seem to remember this one and I don't know if they did one or many acquisitions. I, I we were not involved in this one in particular, but I, I do remember it at the time and I saw, um, a couple other NOL plans put forth that other funds put together ba on the basis of using ALJJ almost as a template. Yeah. And uh, those did not pan out or, well, I guess some of them were, they remains to be seen, but you know, I've not seen anything based on, you know, that I, I've seen some templates based on ALJJ. Yeah. yeah. And it's all about that acquisition, right? And so ALJ made those, <clears throat> they made three acquisitions the first acquisition, I think it was a solid one. It was a company called Fanuel. It was a call center company. They made that acquisition nine months later mm -hmm. after the tender offer and they borrowed money to do it. And I think the plan, or at least the plan that appeared to me was that you would buy this company, you'd lever it up. It throws off a lot of EBITDA 
but there's not taxable income, so the NOLs are not really getting used up. But I think the longer term plan was that you reinvest in this business and have the opportunity for growth, and then five or seven or 10 years down the line, you sell it for significantly more than what you bought it for, and that's how you use up the NOLs as long as you, Got it. you do it before so a large capital gain on the back end was exactly because that's what they did with the steel company too and i think that was the playbook going forward and fanuel the first acquisition was it was probably a good one for that relatively predictable business they they processed it's kind of a call center they also process um you know like speeding tickets they do they run tolls like a sun pass down in florida they they Mm -hmm. run that program so they're like an outsourced kind of recipient um of of those just business processing type things they, they do billing for like dominion power and virginia and those types of things and then they started getting into uh during the healthcare act uh, uh whatever a number of years ago to process process like signups and, and stuff like that so not a bad business right uh but again the issue was not throwing off kind of taxable income right and so fine the second business then they bought which I think was sort of an opportunistic play. They bought a, uh, it was a flooring company in Las Vegas. And it was just a few million dollars. It was very small. Whereas Fanuel was, uh, let's say Fanuel was like 30 million or something like that. I have to specifically check the notes. It was larger. Um, and, uh, and so the, the flooring company in Vegas never made a profit, has never, uh, I mean, it's it maybe for a couple quarters or two, but it's been, you know, I think, again, they had the opportunity, they, they thought they had the opportunity to grow it and that never happened. It's just not a good fit for that type of- It's uh, growing the NOL, it's using it. Yeah, it's, it's growing the NOL, it's not using the NOL. It is growing the NOL. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I guess depending on what your NOL strategy is, it could have been, could have been good or not. Uh, but then a couple of years later, they bought a, a company called Phoenix Color. So these are the three holdings right now, the three subsidiaries. Phoenix Color uh, was a, a printer primarily related to educational materials and things like that. Right. Same situation. They've really levered up for this one. And uh, it also has not been doing well. And certainly, it's been, I don't want to say something. It's fine, right? But it's not creating taxable income due to the debt. And it's a melting ice cube. Yeah. It's those types of situations where I think Fanuel actually had the opportunity and has grown. And if they could uh, really, I mean, we'll see what happens. They had a few missteps here, but they, there is still that potential with Fanuel, that first acquisition uh, to uh, carry through on probably what the original Plan. strategy was. The other two acquisitions, in my opinion, uh, have, have not have not been good, not worked out well. Now, again, though, you go back and you say, well, if you're an investor, it depends on your entry and exit point. So today, uh, the stock has reacted to all of that debt and all of the issues with the subsidiaries that they have. Now, it's been a number of years, right? So they first made the Fanuel uh, acquisition in 2014 and, um, and, and or 2000, late 2013, that time period. And then they made the uh, floor, floors and more, it's called carpets and more in like early 2014. And then Phoenix color was a couple of years after that. Well, now it's been four years, right? Five years since these acquisitions have happened and the stock price is all the way back down to what it was when it was a shell company. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't have a, I don't have a chart, but if I, if I, if I did, it would be like, it went like this. Yeah. And then like this. Yeah. 
And if you're looking at it, it's sort of like the charts giving you the finger. <laughs> well, I think it did. It did give a lot of people the finger. <laughs> um, what, when did the NOL start to expire? Uh, yeah, so the NOL, <laughs> excuse me. Um, I think they began, I think that first ones expire 2022, and then they, it's over the next three or four years that the majority expire. Um, I'd have to, I'd have to check back my, my, my notes here. I, uh, I mean, so it's a reasonable thing. Because the I mean, thesis no, has gone away here, but, uh, but yeah. I, right. Ideally over the next year or two, they're going to divest. If they can part, part of the strategy, they'll divest one of those businesses at a profit. We'll see. Hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully. Fingers crossed. So this is, this is, this is one you're, you're no longer involved with, right? I still have a small position. I had a big position in the beginning and, and through the time period where it had all these kind of special situation characteristics that were interesting to me. Now it's not really a special situation play anymore. And I had, at, some, at one point I had sold out completely and then had bought back in in a smaller position. So now it's, it's, a, you know, it's a smaller position in the fund and I'm just kind of riding along with it because it, you know, in my opinion today, it still is very cheap. Uh, there are fears about the debt but if uh, those, you know, they're close to the covenants being tripped and things like that. But every time they've been renegotiated and, you know, there is still value, I think, with some of these subsidiaries. And so uh, difficult during this time period uh, for the sale process, if they, they do or end up looking to do that over the next few years. So we'll see what happens. But, you know, in, in my opinion, at this price, um, you know, there is certainly some risk with the debt, but I mean, it is. It is, uh, it is pretty cheap. And, you know, going back um, it, originally, again, that, that liquidation value at the time of the tender offer was like 75 cents, something like that, 76 cents. And, you know, they did the tender offer for less than that. And we can talk through some of the other special situation characteristics, but it ran up above $5 yeah. uh, you know, in, in, say, 2017 time period. And, right. uh, you know, so, so you depending on your 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 luck uh, trading, right. you may or done you may have done well, or you may not have done well at all. Depending. So, so take us through your thinking as it evolved over time. They're doing these deals. People seem to really like the stock. Uh, the the guy that's in charge of it has, at, at one point, I I don't know if he still has this or not, but had something of a cult following uh, among sort of small micro cap investors. I don't I don't know if he's maintained that status or not, but like sort of, sort of just. You know, because obviously it's come back way back in. So take us take us through your thinking as it evolved. Like, what 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 sort of happened as it went along? Like, were were there um, sort of projections that weren't hit? Was it sort of you know, Eric and I when we when we experience these things, a lot of times it's almost like uh, we we call it the boiling frog. Yeah. You know, if you throw a frog into hot water, he's going to jump right out. But if you if you heat it to a boil, that's how you kill him. But it's like. We, and we've experienced, that a, we've experienced that a lot, uh, <laughs> and I should tell. Uh, we've experienced that enough, more times than we would like to experience enough that. Enough to start a podcast about Enough to have a podcast. <laughs> you're not alone. Look, I mean, if you invest for an, in any time period, you're going to have those types of things. You just have to be worried about thesis creep. You know, if you got in because of some of these special situation characteristics, when those things are complete or are done, uh, or if something changes, the, you know, your analysis of the business or something like that changes, you know, you do have to, to get out. And that is one thing where you have to appreciate Buffett. You know, when he goes to exit a position, he doesn't just trim it. He blows it out. He'll just yeah. get out. And that happened with the airlines earlier this year. It seems like it just happened with Wells Fargo as well, very long-term holding of his. And if you start to just kind of trim it, you, you don't, 
you know, if you make a decision that you're not interested in the company anymore, the operations, because of something has changed or your analysis was wrong, it's better to just blow out, I think. But going back to the early days of ALJ, you know, again, I had this tender offer, had the NOLs, the acquisition seemed interesting. And uh, it immediately, I think it ran up to about a buck 80 from 70 cents a share after the acquisition. So that was interesting if you're, and it seemed like there was more value there too. Uh, but then, you know, once you go along and you see, well, I don't, you know, I wasn't looking to invest in a company that has a, so much debt. You know, you want a strong balance sheet company, all of a sudden it doesn't have a strong balance sheet anymore. Right. But the next thing on the horizon was they uplisted to the NASDAQ, right? So they were a non-SEC uh, reporting, I believe they're non-SEC reporting, pink sheet company. Yeah. And um, they were, they were. And then they, they uploaded, they became SEC filing company. They did an S1, they went up to the uh, NASDAQ. And then you know what? Next year they get into the Russell 2000, right? Yep. So that's another opportunity. And that's actually when the stock price really flew. Yeah. You know, once you get into the Russell 2000, you get that index inclusion. The float was very low because the CEO or the executive chairman owned half of the, mm -hmm. the company. And so I think this is the, the lesson for future things, you know, future discoveries of, uh, of companies that when these small companies with a low amount of float get index inclusions, uh, then there's opportunities for, uh, for really rapid movement in the stock. And that's what happened. That's really when it, when it ran out. But at that point, operationally, once that index inclusion happened, uh, that's where the special situation things ended. <laughs> right, right, right. You had five or six of these things that were interesting to people like us. And then after that, it was just a lever. Uh, yeah, it was just uh, a levered uh, call center flooring. Uh, some NOLs that weren't being used. Yeah, and with businesses that were kind of melting ice cubes themselves. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that Eric and I have noticed over time is you sort of have to take the liquidity when it's there, if, yeah. if it's there. It's because it's, uh, you know, uh, it comes and goes. It does. And that's one of the interesting things, especially with small caps, where you'll see, uh, you know, when you run a fund, when you run a portfolio, and once you get to a certain size, you do have to take into account the liquidity ability to buy into the company. And also if you do need to exit, depending on what your kind of terms are with your investors. And so you do need to take that into account, but it is a little bit dangerous because if you look at like average trading volume or whatever the last 90 days or, or even something like that, um, it can seem either overly high or overly low, depending on what sort of activity is going on or excitement at that particular time. And quite frankly, when you, when you have distressed time periods, uh, most companies' liquidities go away, you know? <laughs> so it doesn't matter if it's a tiny $50 million company or if it's a billion. I mean, yeah, of course, a large company, but it's still going to have a very, very large company. I'll have it, but they're billion-dollar companies that, you know, things can move because even big block sales are being traded uh, by larger funds that are liquidating. And it's, it's – um, it's not something that is as predictable as, as people think in terms well, of it, It's sort of amazing how reflexive liquidity can be. So when it comes, it comes in waves and when it goes, it's gone. And um, you know, it's amazing the extent to which I think price is set by the incremental buyer and seller in some of these names. It's just, you know, Eric and I own things that, you know, somebody comes along and wants to bank some out that day. It's, it's you know, you're gonna deal with some tough prints. But that's the opportunity too, buying in. Yeah, so. Interesting. What, 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 um, did we go through some of the lessons learned or did we, 
get to that point yet or? Yeah, we can, I, I mean, I, I think for me at least, and I'd love to actually hear your guys' take on this as well, hearing the story, you know, because <laughs> now that it's kind of come full circle, uh, I mean, I did well on it, you know, it's not an issue of, I still own some, but, um, you know, it's, it, it worked out well if your timing was lucky or if, if you made the decision when that, when that thesis kind of changed, right? Um, but the lesson for me was, look, it is attractive to get into companies that are doing significant tender offers. <clears throat> um, it's amazing that occasionally this happens at below liquidation value. And when there is insider ownership and that alignment, you can do very well in those companies. You don't have to make it a 10 year holding, but you can trade on that. You can get in for a year or two. You can see what happens, but there is alignment there. And I think it's valuable to look at companies that have that alignment. Yeah. And, and uh, so you have that, you have, you know, it's a way to judge at the time what would be good capital allocation. Now that's a positive thing to learn. And also the index inclusion things that we talked about as well. Now, the more negative lessons I, I think to apply or that, that we've learned from it or I've learned from it uh, is that once it levers up, uh, you got to be careful. You know, you're, if you're originally interested in a company because of its strong balance sheet and there's that strong balance sheet also gives optionality for ac future acquisitions. Once the acquisition's made, the marketplace generally overreacts positively to the future. And it is a better situation, like you said, better to sell, um, to, you know, to sell the news <laughs> and, and not, not have to follow all the way through uh, on, on the operations themselves. Because there's one thing we were talking before this started, you know, Expel um, has gone through the roof. And, you know, there's an oper the operators there are fanatical. But when you're doing a financial engineering type of thing, which is what this is, the operations are going to be much it's, it's not, the leaders don't have that experience and they're not fanatical operators. They're fanatical financial engineers. Yeah. I, I think in our experience, when we've looked at these, they've been more financial people. They've been more kind of distressed guys, more valuation focused guys. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I guess they would recognize a good business if they saw one, but they can't sort of bring themselves to pay up for one. You know, they'd rather do something that's kind of cute and get something that looks like it's got a low multiple, even if it's sort of, Kind of a crappy That's business true. i mean it's it's you know i've always wondered with these things why somebody doesn't come along and put something in there that actually generates good profits at good margins and just protect and just shelter the income and reinvest and has good reinvestment runway like right. to me that would be like the optimal kind of thing to put inside one of these things but if you think about the type of person that gets control of over one of these types of things it's not somebody who thinks that way typically right. it's somebody who um it's somebody who uh you know, is, 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 is out there buying some distressed debt or something like that. And then they get a stake or, you know, like whatever they it is. They'll set to turn it around because they don't have that operational fanaticism to turn something like that around. It doesn't say it couldn't happen, but it's much less, less likely to happen from, you know, a financial engineering type of uh, uh, operator from the company. So, no, I, I completely agree. And I, I think um, for something like this, the special situation, characteristics and categories are worth looking at and seeing if they apply in other companies. Right. Mm -hmm. That I, I like that aspect of it. And, but again, the negative thing is once, once it's different than the things that you're interested in, this happened with real industries a number of years ago as well. I don't know if you remember that company where Sam's. We, 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 we have some experience with that one. 
That's uh, maybe one we can talk about at some point. I had some negative experience with that as well. And um, I, uh, and again, no, they made the acquisition and they levered up and that's when the problem, the stock ran up. That's the time to get out. Yeah. 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 That one, I think they bought, they levered up to buy a business that um, they didn't really control their key input costs Mm -hmm. and their margins. And, you know, it's sort of like you're, 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 you're driving a car at 75 miles an hour with a dagger on the wheel and uh you know no ability to turn eventually you're just going to crash and die like yeah. it, at least in my that was the way i viewed it when when i saw what they were doing and i was like all right well we, we were very <laughs> we, we were very interested in the rights offering actually yeah. and we participated yeah. in the rights offering and actually you know that actually okay. turned out okay because we we came to the, the conclusion about the car and the dagger very early on yeah um we didn't stick around to see the rest of the story. As but long now, as you sell out, for sure, you know, and, and that's that's the thing. I and that and that's another. I'm glad you brought up the rights offerings because that's another great opportunity, a special situation opportunity at times, because the rights offerings will show up in S1 filings, and the S1s are typically filed as drafts, right? Yeah. So yeah. for smaller companies, because they don't get the confidential treatment that a larger company might get, and so if you have this set up in your RSS feed, you can see there's you know there's five or six S1 filings every day and. They're massive documents, but you know maybe one out of 30 of them are interesting. But you can scroll through real quick and see whether it's worthwhile to look deeper at it. And you know if it's a rights offering of a company that seems to have some sort of plan, again, you don't need to hold on for five years to see the plan carried out. But there is the, the reflexivity about um, the excitement that there is a plan, and now all of a sudden they've been able to raise all this cash, and there's run-ups associated with that. And you yeah. know is. You're getting you're getting it in at a discount with the well, we, we like we, we like to look at them particularly when it looks like uh, management or some financial backer is trying to engineer sort of an off market deal to put a lot of money into the company yep. at like a contrived price and you don't even necessarily need to buy like what we found is we don't even necessarily need to buy to get the rights when that happens because the holders are going to tr- are so most of the companies and particularly in the smaller companies. Uh, when you need to do a rights offering, you've actually got to put up the cash in your account to do it. Like they don't let you do it on a margin account or anything like that. So like what happens is a lot of folks will get the rights and then they'll finance the, 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 the participation in the offering by selling the stock itself. Yeah. It'll arm itself actually down to the offering price. So it's, it's almost like physics in a way, like it it just kind of happens. And so we've, we've, that's one of those things that we've, we frequently, uh, Mm -hmm. Uh, spent a little bit of time looking, yeah. some time looking at. So, yeah, for well, sure, those are interesting. So, well, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, we should probably yeah. have more conversations like this because it sounds like we fish in similar <laughs> ponds. <and laughs> we know some of the same people, and uh, you're, you're, you're. Uh, well, uh, hopefully, we can find a current opportunity to discuss maybe yeah, nice. buy into it instead of some of these historical ones that some worked out, some didn't. But uh, you know, we're keeping our eyes out out there for sure. I know you guys are too, and I think. Look, when you have a distressed kind of economic situation right now, I think next year there's going to be some divestitures. That'll be interesting. There'll be some other, there'll probably be some rights offerings or some acquisitions from companies who are effective capital allocators that can take take over some distressed things, but might actually be good operators um, yeah. in that case. So there's a lot of stuff to watch and look at, I think, over the next six months or a year. And I mean, if we ever get... I mean, we'll see what happens when when all the economy opens back up again, and if there's inflation, and what the Fed does, and the political aspect, and everything like that. But those those types of uncertainties and uh, dislocations economically is what creates opportunities, I think, for investors like us. 
Yeah, I, I agree. Eric and I always we always find something to do. Yeah. So I'm sure every, we're every, sharing ideas every, for the future. Every, every year there's what, like three or four, five, six things to, yeah. to do something over the course of a year. Every other month we find something that we're really fascinated by. So yeah. Just, well, and I think the biggest takeaway, if I, I can close on my end, is those tender offers. You know, I've had a number of those that have worked out very well. Um, when when there is a strategic reason behind it and when the majority or controlling shareholder is not selling, right. yeah. you know? So um, there was one a couple of years ago, IntraWest Resorts, that was great. It was, it was partially owned by a, a private equity fund and they were doing a, a tender offer and not participating, even though the, life, the end of the life of that private, of the fund was coming up and they still didn't sell their share. So you know they had something going on behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. right. And yeah. this is what happens in the companies. You have to be humble to the fact that there are discussions and strategies that are going on in the boardroom that we don't know publicly about, no matter how much research and scuttlebutt you can kind of do, but you can see the incentives there and you can follow those incentives. And it's, it's worthwhile, even with some uncertainty, it's worthwhile opening up a little bit of a position uh, to see where it goes, because sometimes those are multi-bagger opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. But Steven, we really appreciate you being here with us today. Where can people go to find out more about your fund, more about you? Sure. So uh, you can go to arquitos.com, A-R-Q-U-I-T-O-S. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Stephen with a V underscore Kiel, K-I-E-L. And then uh, also obviously involved with Willow Oak uh, as a management as well. And that's willowoakfunds.com. Uh, happy to, uh, you know, uh, share some discussions on Twitter and elsewhere. Awesome. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you everyone for tuning in today. Uh, you can, again, you can check us out on our blog, www.creativewealthpartners.com. Uh, you can find us, download, download the podcast, wherever podcasts are available. It's also in the market trenches.podbean.com, or you can find us at snn.network or on YouTube, uh, youtube.com slash snn wire. Uh, Steven, thank you so much. Really appreciate you being here with us today. Uh, anything else? No, I mean, if you're out there listening and you've got a story and you'd like to join us, uh, we'd love to hear from you. And uh, if you could rate and review us, it helps us out. All right. Well, thanks, that, guys. Gary and I are going to the beach. <laughs> Gary, guys. <laughs> Take it easy. Thanks, Stephen. The information in this podcast is educational in general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.